The scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him, as truth is in Jesus. You were, you were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, and let me add my greeting to Lisa's. It's really good to be with you and to be in the pulpit. Um, I miss the tall, handsome man that we had here last week, and I look forward to many more weeks uh, of Ray and his ministry among us. And thanks, Kristen, for reading the first section of our morning's scripture. The passage continues in Ephesians uh, 4, verses 25 through 32. So then, Paul writes, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Tomorrow marks one month since the world heard the news that Pastor Tim Keller passed into glory. There have been many wonderful tributes and memories of all that Dr. Keller meant to people, particularly to those who he touched personally, people from all walks of life, inside the church, but many who were not believers at all, and who Tim's gracious way meant something very special. And there's been one quote of his among the many things that he said that, are, that bear repeating, but this has been, uh, I've heard it several times, read it, and it has stayed with me. He said it a couple of different ways, actually. Once I found it, there was a tweet. He, he, did, he did Twitter, uh, also a Facebook post, but he wrote lots of books, and I'm reading from one of his more recent books, 
his quote about the gospel. The gospel is this, Keller said, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. More sinful and flawed than we ever believed, more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. This, in a nutshell, actually, I think, is a really fine way, pithy summary of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, where we have been spending our time since Easter. In these first three chapters, Paul offers a magnificent account of God's grace, reconciling us through the work of Jesus Christ. Us, indeed, the whole world. And for us to understand, now that we're in chapter 4, what Paul is doing with the rest of the book, it helps to remember the line of reasoning. Keller's summary gives us the content, but Donna Marsh, who may not be as well known as Tim Keller, a few months ago in her sermon on Ephesians 2, offered what I think is a really helpful summary of Paul's complex line of thought in these first chapters. Do you remember the three brief phrases she left with us? You were, but God, so that. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. In Keller's words, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And remember this, whenever we read Paul's letters, we need to remember that Paul is not writing to individuals. I mean, there are individuals, but they all heard Paul's letters read together. They didn't get copies from the Xerox machine. These were corporate letters written to bodies of people that were heard together in the churches that Paul wrote to. And so, every time Paul says you, it's a plural you, meaning all of you. You were dead. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in, with Christ, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. Or as Keller put it, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Last Sunday in Dr. Hilton's sermon, we heard about Paul's vision for a healthy church that begins the second half of this letter and continues throughout chapters 4 through 6. And Paul began chapter 4 with a plea. I beg you, Ephesian Christians, to live a life worthy of the calling in which you have been called. And you'll find that verse printed on the cover of this morning's bulletin. In this morning's scripture, Paul offers some very clear instructions with concrete examples for what it means to actually live such a life, a life worthy 
of God's calling. The accounts of Paul's narrative can become overwhelming as we read through the details of the specific context of the Ephesian church. There's some complex background that requires a, a lot of time to unpack. But the big picture, the overall point, is very clear. And the main thing that I think you need to know in order to understand these final three chapters, verses, uh, chapters four through six, is expressed in a single word. So in addition to Donna's three phrases, you were, but God, so that, add one more, the word therefore. As we saw in verse four of chapter, or verse one of chapter four, as you see on the bulletin cover, Paul begins the second section of the letter with this word. Therefore, this word may be Paul's favorite word. It's certainly his favorite short word. And it's his favorite way to make the transition from the truth about who God is and what God has done for us in Christ to how we are to live in faithful response to what God has done. He calls this living a life worthy of God's calling. Paul uses the word therefore two more times in chapter 4, as you see on the slide, and then again uh, launches the last two chapters with the same word. Now, it's not entirely obvious to us when we read the text in our English translation because the English translators were struggling to put into the right kind of language Paul's very complex Greek here, but the word is the same in Greek. A simple three-letter word, therefore. So what happens, what needs to happen for a healthy church to live a life worthy of our calling? What are we to, to, to do in order to be the body of Christ that accurately reflects who we are, what our identity is as God's reconciled people. The answer comes after the therefore. In brief, therefore, we need to see change in our lives. It seemed longer than two weeks ago that Alan was in this pulpit preaching his final sermon. And you may recall that he made an observation that it is or it seems possible for people in the church to have a thorough knowledge of the Bible, to know a lot of Christian truth, maybe memorize the creed, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, to know and to even say that we believe all these things and yet have lives that do not consistently reflect what we say we believe. And Alan poses a provocative question to us, and he says when, when some of our beliefs uh, seem to alien, uh, seem alien to uh, our 
world today, what do we do? Do we simply abandon them? Do we give them up? Or do we, in a more subtle way, just sort of ignore and dismiss as inconvenient biblical truths things that seem to go against the grain of the culture and life in the real world? In order not to do that, Alan suggested, in order to live consistently with the truth of the gospel that we profess to believe, he said it takes a different imagination than the one that we may have, a transformed imagination. And I mention this because this is precisely the situation that Paul is confronting with the church in Ephesus. He writes, he says to them, rather bluntly, and you might want to just have your passage uh, open in, in the bulletin, but he says in verse 17, stop living the way the Gentiles do. If you have read the letter to the Ephesians, if you have been doing as both Alan and Ray suggested, kind of reading it along as we've preached on it, you'll find that this prohibition, this negative statement, this stop, is rather jarring. It comes after phrase after phrase and verse after verse and chapter after chapter of Paul ringing the changes, the positive and glowing praise and positive affirmation of all that God has done for us in Christ and all that we are because of that. Everything has been stated so positively. And then comes the dull, austere, negative words, sort of like the sound effect that we hear of the phonograph needle being torn across the vinyl of the record. Couldn't Paul have found a nicer way of saying this, a more positive approach? I mean, he's had such good momentum up to this point. Isn't there some challenge to positive action that he could have issued to the Ephesian church? Apparently, he didn't think so. And I think I know why. I think he took this negative approach because, in his judgment, the Ephesian Christians were not ready to hear anything else. Think about it. This letter is written primarily to newly Christian people who had grown up in a Gentile, which is to say a non-Jewish culture. And so, unlike some of the first Christians, these Ephesian believers did not have years of hearing the stories of the Hebrew faithful. They did not have years of worship and moral practice that was foundational to much of the early church, the one in Jerusalem, say. Instead, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, had been shaped and formed by a different world, not the world of the Ten Commandments and of, the, of prayer to a holy God, but the Greek and Roman world of gods and goddesses. They had been raised on the myths of 
Zeus and Hera presiding over a pantheon of sexually profligate and insatiable murderers. And these were their deities. Now, the stories about these deities could show occasional psychological insight, and they were entertaining and captivating. We learned them probably in our school when we were younger. But these stories that were the foundation of Greek religion are devoid of any mention of morality. Religion and morality didn't mix in pagan culture. Morals were taught by philosophers. They weren't missing. But knowledge of the ancient wisdom of the philosophers was confined to the upper class, the educated, the intelligentsia. The average person on the street, including a sizable portion of the slave population, which made up a preponderance of the early Christian converts, they were largely ignorant of philosophy. And so they didn't have any moral formation at all. We know from the book of Acts that Paul's preaching against idolatry nearly caused a riot in Ephesus. Why? Well, it was the seat of the temple to Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And Paul wrote that idols were not real. It threatened the business because Artemis is probably the most widely worshipped deity of Paul's time. And there were goldsmiths and silversmiths in Ephesus who made statues of her and sold them to the many pilgrims who came from across the empire to worship her. Devotees came from all over. And when they got there, they found hundreds of eunuch priests, virgin priestesses, and temple prostitutes leading a kind of debauched worship that, well, it was erotic and more. And so when Paul uses the word Gentile, that's what he's talking about. Don't behave the way the Gentiles do. The, the, the culture that has nurtured you with the likes of the cult of the goddess Artemis. So, it's a reference to this culture that was rich in religious imagination, but morally impoverished, that Paul says, stop that. And so, he says in verses 17 and 18 that the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. That's what he's talking about. There's just this lack of foundation of formation that leads to a darkened understanding that alienates them from life with God. Paul knew that it just would not work for these new believers to embody the reconciled community of Christ that he so enthusiastically described in the first three chapters and the first part of chapter four in the book of Ephesians. It wasn't going to work if they continued to live according to the assumptions of the Ephesian culture that religion had nothing to do with morality. Now, as I suggested, if he'd been writing to a congregation from a Jewish background, he wouldn't have needed to say these things, to make these prohibitions, because Jews heard the Ten Commandments. They regularly prayed to a holy God. They had years of, found, of a foundation of morals 
through the stories that they had heard and the faith they had practiced, but not these new Gentile Christians. And so Paul set some negative boundaries. They're not complex. They're not difficult to understand. These guidelines for a moral life are clear, and they create the proper context, really a fertile ground for growing up into Christ. It's important to make an observation here. The Christian life does not begin with moral behavior. We don't become good in order to get God. It's the other way around. First, through God's grace, we are saved and reconciled through Christ. First, we get God, and then he transforms our life. So the morality follows the relationship. And once we're offered the grace of God in Christ, this moral behavior provides the place where transformation can take place so that we are conformed to the image and purpose for which God has created us. I want to point you to a startling phrase in verse 20, where Paul says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Learning Christ. This is the only place in the Greek Bible and the only known place in any pre-biblical Greek document that speaks of learning a person. Not a text, not an idea, not a school, a person. And we know that this is the incredible message of the gospel, that we know God as an actual person. We don't just know knowledge about Christ. We know the person Christ. And I'll say again that we don't do any of this on our own, by ourselves. We can only be faithful followers of Jesus Christ if we are together doing it. Paul sums up all that he's talking about beginning in verse 22, when he says, put away your former way of life, your old self. He's still speaking in the plural here when he describes the new direction the Ephesian Christians are supposed to take when he goes to a different metaphor in verse 24. He says, clothe yourselves with the new, the new self created according to the likeness of God. In other words, get dressed up in the attire, the costume of the image of God, because that's the image in which you were created. Two things are happening here, and we heard them stated very clearly in our message to the children. There is a putting off and a putting on. There's a how we should not walk and how we should walk. There's a getting rid of the old pattern and of the old person and taking on of a new pattern and a new person. And both need to happen. Take off, put on, 
They can't be separated from each other. We are all aware of some Christian communities, I think, that place all of the emphasis on the putting off. Don't do this. Don't do that. So much emphasis on what we're not supposed to do that the putting on, the taking on the image of Christ gets lost and it falls into legalism. And there's another end of that spectrum. There are those who are all talk about grace. All they want to do is put on the new, put on the new, and conveniently forgetting that there's also this command to take off the old. You can't put on the new clothes until, until you take off the old. And so we have this statement in verse 22 of putting off and verse 24 of getting clothed and putting on. And then there is this statement in between where Paul tells us how it takes place. And it takes place when our minds are renewed in the Spirit. And I told you already that Paul's Greek uh, is too complex, certainly for me to understand, but for many commentators. And it's particularly difficult at this point. He's trying to describe something that really defies language. And our text gets at part of it, but it misses something that's very important. Because what takes place when we put away the former life and dress in the new life is that there is a change, but we don't make the change. God makes it. We are renewed by the Holy Spirit in our minds. And so unlike the putting off and then the putting on, the renewing of the, the mind is not something that we do. It's something that's done to us by God, and it's not something that happens to us as individuals. It happens to us together as Christ's people in the church. Yes, each of us has our own minds, and when we put off the old self and put on the new self, then God can renew our minds as he promises, but we don't absorb it sitting and listening by ourselves in a church pew or in front of a screen somewhere. We walk into it. We put it on together. And there's something that we need to do in order for God to transform our minds. This something can only happen to us together. I think this is the change in the imagination that Alan Poole was describing the last time he preached. This is what needs to change so that our belief about the Bible and Christian doctrine actually consistently determines our actions. Our minds need to be renewed, in Paul's words. It's easy to see the need for this in the life of the first century Ephesian Christians. The prohibitions that Paul gives the young Gentile congregation are important for their new life in Christ because they have so obviously been malformed and misshapen by pagan culture. It's permeated every waking moment prior to their, conver their conversion. 
but it may be more difficult for us to notice because it's the proverbial air we breathe. If we're fish, it's the water we swim in. We don't really notice it. And that's why it's helpful to pay attention to these exhortations that I read as the second passage of Scripture this morning. Put away falsehood. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. No stealing. Stop evil talk. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. No wrangling, no slander, no malice, no fornication. These negatives name actions and attitudes that were accepted as commonplace. Some of them were even sanctioned in the culture of the Gentile world of the Ephesian Christians. But increasingly, they are appearing and reappearing in the Gentile culture of America. Eugene Peterson helps, uh, offers a helpful analogy for, understand, for understanding what Paul is doing here. It's the idea of negative space. That's what these negatives, these prohibitions do. Just as an artist will uh, use negative space in order to know what to leave out of a painting or a, a sculpture, any kind of a work of art, Paul offers these negatives as a way of seeing what a healthy church is going to look like by what's not there. It's negatives that make our unity possible. A healthy church embraces these kinds of guidelines, welcomes the negative space so that we have principles for our life together in the same way that, and we welcome them in the same way that a ship captain welcomes buoys that mark off the shallow portions for the navigation of a ship in the harbor. Most of the Christian life is not negative. It's positive response to what God says and does. It's the positive that really defines us, but the negatives make it possible for us to do what God is calling us positively to do. And so we finish with these five examples of the former life that we need to put away or take off. And Paul begins by telling us why they are so important. So then, he begins. It's the word therefore. Therefore, put away falsehood and speak the truth. Why? Because we are members of one another. Nothing short of the fact that we belong to each other. We're not individuals cut off and alienated from one another. We're reconciled and we need each other. Indeed, every one of Paul's exhortation is, is not just about me and my personal change, but how I make life better and how others make life better for me and with me and for the world in which we live. There's no other way to be the body of Christ than to do these things for each other, to, to be dependent upon each other because we're connected to each other. And each exhortation takes on greater importance if we realize 
this very important fact. We belong to each other. Paul gives us five. Tell the truth. Deal with anger so that it doesn't fester. Don't take what is yours. Learn to be generous. Don't use corrupt or evil words. Don't use words in a corrupt or malicious way. And put away unresolved anger. Anger seems to be an issue. And Paul mentions it twice. And friends, I don't know about you, but as I watch it, our culture increasingly seems unable to agree on what is true. Anger and rage seem to be endemic and on the rise. Generosity, certainly generosity of spirit, is in short supply. Words are chronically misused, abused, and made devoid of meaning. And this is what Paul tells us as the church to put off as we put on Christ and create the possibility for God's promised transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need each other more than ever. And let me say that the world needs the church more than ever. This is our calling. This is our privilege. This is what we get to do. We can make a difference. We can shine Christ's light in the world by putting off the old ways and putting on Christ. We were dead in our sins, more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But God made us alive with Christ so that he might show grace towards us in Christ. We're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Therefore, we put off the old and we put on the new so that together as Christ's body, we can tra be transformed by the Holy Spirit into Christ's faithful followers. Please pray with me. Gracious God, help us to realize the magnitude of who you are and what you have accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Grant us the grace to follow Paul's exhortations to put off the old in order to take on the new, to give you the way to transform us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.